0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. My name is Matt. You already know that I am here today with Alex, who is a software growth engineer here at Drift. Alex, thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, really excited to be here. I interview a lot of the guests that I have on remote. This is the first time that we are both remote because we're in the middle of the COVID-19 stuff. So everyone at Drift is working from home. So we're trying this out. Hopefully the microphones sound good. I I think they sound okay. So we're just going to roll with it. All right. So Alex, you switched over from a more traditional product engineering role to a growth engineering role. What was it? Roughly about a year ago?
1: Yeah, it was about a year ago. I think that was, it's March now. I would say I switched over at the beginning of May. So yeah, just about
0: a year. Awesome. And what I would love to do here, because you have learned so much during that transition between the different types of roles, and you've even given a talk internally about the differences between traditional product engineering and growth engineering. I would love to chat here of what those differences are, what you've learned to maybe highlight it for folks that are considering maybe moving into growth engineering or are growth engineers and want to hear what someone else's experiences. Have been like or there are also aspects of this that apply to product engineering as well that you've learned that you feel is really useful for that side of the coin too. So why don't you give us quick background on yourself and then we'll go ahead and jump in. Sure. Like you said, my name is Alex. I
1: studied at Northeastern University, I graduated last spring, just about the same time actually that I switched over to the growth team. But prior to that, I had been working on a couple of the more traditional product teams at Drift, working on the calendar seats that launched around the same time last year, eventually switched over to the Drift video product, which we now work on today. Again, joined the video product under the growth capacity. So we were looking at stuff like the adoption of the new product and making sure that new users were uh, activating correctly and seeing the value that we knew that they could see in the product.
0: That is great. And for folks that are listening that are wondering, he graduated, but he was working at Drift. We have this contingent of people that are Northeastern students and also work at Drift basically full time while they're still in school. It's quite impressive. And Alex is one of those folks. So that's why there's a weird overlap there that might not make sense to a lot of people. Okay, cool. So why don't we go ahead and and jump right in? So the core talk that you had given internally at Drift was that there two main buckets of learning that you wanted to share. One, which is things that were specifically different about growth engineering that traditional product engineering didn't really teach you. And then things that transferred really well into growth engineering. And so why don't we go ahead and, and jump into some of the things that are were like more explicitly different. How does the definition of success change between traditional product engineering and growth engineering?
1: Yeah, of course. I think this was the first glaring difference that I noticed when I switched over. I really didn't have a great understanding of what growth engineering was in the first place, which was the first hurdle to get over. Product engineering, at least from a traditional standpoint, is very focused on maintaining and improving the experience that your area of the product produces and provides to your customers. But growth engineering is often more focused on a problem and a funnel these are things like adoption acquisition and monetization more so than just like general product usage of your feature so i got introduced to a lot of things around hypothesis driven development because like you said success is measured a little differently here on the the growth side of things it's less about just releasing stuff into the wild and okay cool people are using it then let's move on to the next problem making sure that you defined what success would look like beforehand, knowing specifically that if we changed this piece of the flow in the signup funnel, we expect that if this were to be successful, it would impact signup rates by this percentage, essentially. The tricky part here was we had to be way more okay with failure and using it as a learning opportunity more so than even working on a product team because the the definition of success is way more outcome driven there's no hiding behind that shipped work just because something was released like i said you can't just call it a day essentially and using all those statistical tests helped you prove the outcomes down to a very specific and confident level and the definition of success was so different it forced you to set better expectations around accomplishments and progress and you also had to think a lot smaller where On a traditional team, you can kind of think, well, we want to release this new product by the end of the month. We will break that work down into small deliverable chunks. And then the end of the month rolls around and we have our new feature. It's a little more tangible than saying, well, we have these metrics. We want to get them up to these industry benchmarks so we can have a better understanding of how our product is performing. It's a little less tangible and understandable and relatable, even to think about how your customers are impacting your funnels that you're owning, essentially.
0: And I think something that you got on really quick in the learning curve is that you need to deeply understand the business metrics behind the things that you're building more so than just, are people using this? Do they like it, right? It is fundamentally, how does this thing contribute to like this part of our business's funnel?
1: Yeah, totally. One of the things that I had reflected on at one point was when we were building the calendaring seat for the Drift Meetings products, I remember thinking that, okay, we have a few months to work on this. I can essentially just hide behind this checklist of features that we need to deliver. And once everything's done, we're done. And that's it. I didn't really think about how the actual business metrics played into it and I hadn't really given much thought to like, well, what if customers didn't want this in the first place? What if we didn't have the right metrics in place to understand if this was being important and being used by our customers?
0: We started with the complete part of the cycle, which is you've shipped the thing and and how do you define what success is really going to look like? How about the cadence of shipping? How did that change?
1: Yeah, I think the taking it from A more traditional sense to the the growth engineering sense, you have to think a lot smaller and ship a lot faster. I think a lot of it is because you don't have that tangible end goal in mind, where if you're working towards improving a metric by a certain percentage, you don't quite know what that final state will look like. And the best you can do is take smaller bets based on information and observations you've gathered brainstorm around new solutions and make small investments repeatedly and hope that as you get 3 4 wins in a row they'll all compound and eventually you'll hit that goal of the final benchmark that you're shooting for in the beginning the approach you have to take is slightly differently where the the tracer bullets that we use were essentially like scoping down your work to the smallest possible valuable version of itself well it's more about validating your assumptions around the impact that they might have and it's it's either going to give you an avenue to continue pursuing those learnings or it will potentially direct you in a different different course but using those smaller scoped projects allow you to course correct a lot faster to make sure that you're always working towards the right direction and you're always pushing in the right direction
0: yeah. And one of the things that we started doing as a team once you had joined was the that thing called test to invest, which is kind of like the MVP or minimum viable product. It's more of the minimum viable test to prove that that thing is actually going to work. So it's the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest version of it that you can ship to get an answer on. Can this thing move us forward?
1: Yeah, I think that
0: was super helpful
1: to my general development of understanding growth engineering it gave me something that i could easily grasp around the importance of this like super quick cadence just rapidly shipping small tests here and there gathering new information and brainstorming constantly it really helped to have the whole team involved as well because for traditional product development it often feels like you have a few visionaries that drive the The high level direction, and then each team owns the lower level implementation details. But for the test to invest stuff, it was very much like the entire team was focused on what in the world could we possibly do that would have a strong impact, and how do we validate that assumption as quickly as possible?
0: Yeah. And I just to give people an actionable way to take this test to invest concept. So basically, what it was is twice a week for 5 to 10 minutes you just circle up as a as a group and say all right like who has some ideas of a, like a random hypothesis that they think could move the the goal the number that we're focused on and so we would just toss around ideas and maybe someone says oh well i believe if we had this type of feature then we can get 20 more people signing up every single week then we ask ourselves collectively all right if we had to pair this all the way down is there a way for us to try and see if there's a a means for us to get enough data, like the full feature is going to take us two weeks to build. Is there something we could do in two hours to tell us if it's going to work or not? And this is loosely based off of one of the things that TripAdvisor used to do. I don't know if they still do it, but they called it the 404 test, where they just put a link somewhere on the page that would tell you, hey, you can get this type of recommendation by clicking here. People would click on it and it would just go to a 404, but it would then tell the TripAdvisor team that, oh, wow, 1500 people a day are clicking on this thing, we should probably build it, right? It's the smallest possible test to prove moving forward. Okay, cool. So now that we've moved into more of this data type thing, can you talk a little bit about tracking and using data and how that is different? Because from my experience, it's more intensive, like there's a lot more proactive tracking and stuff that you have to do as a growth engineer.
1: Yeah, I think this was the culmination Of all of my learnings, essentially, this was the most important one that I I realized in that it's so crucial to have sufficient tracking around your products. But it's even more so about proactively setting yourself up for success rather than just being able to retroactively make a report and observe and, and glean some information there. You can always put in new events and let it run for a week, see what happens, and then use that tracking to to understand some of the behaviors. But the biggest learnings that I had was, again, doing this from a more proactive standpoint, where in those test-to-invest meetings, when we said this whole thing would take two weeks to build, how do we prove this would be useful in two days or two hours even? The final step of that was explicitly saying, We need these points of information and these reports to be able to determine what the outcome of the test was. And even more than that, know specifically why something failed or succeeded. And the benefit is that as these things stack up over time, you end up having this massive amount of data and you can draw insights from maybe an experiment you did three months ago. The events are still there. They're still firing you still have that context into how people interact with your app. You can always use that and, again, take that information and proactively set yourself up for success compared to just working completely off of an insight or an observation or a guess that you had. It's always super helpful to have some data-driven expectations for the outcomes and the impact of your work.
0: I want to really highlight this here because... I think, Alex, you are explicitly one of the best people that I've ever worked with that does this because you are really thoughtful about the type of tracking that you need. I think some of the mistakes that I've made really early on when I switched over to growth is there's this impulse to just track it all, right? Just like put tracking events on everything. And then in retrospect, we'll run reports later and know if it worked. But what you were saying here is, it's important to think of, all right, what is it that's actually going to matter? And then I'm going to spend five minutes thinking about it really critically. And then an hour putting in the events versus I'm just going to put an event for every single like click and page and like every refresh and all those types of things.
1: Yeah, it's almost like you need to this is what I do. I work backwards where even thinking about setting up a report after the fact, even if I'm not doing this before launching something, I will go into my notebook and write down, these are the specific pieces of information that I don't have. These are the most valuable insights that I wish I had that I don't currently know. And from that, you can say, well, if I want to know, how long it took for someone to respond to this dialogue modal that popped up on the page. I'll need to know the timestamp of when they landed on the page, the timestamp of when the modal appeared. And then I need an event for every single action that the user can take that will close that dialogue modal. And then now you have a specific subset of the events that you need that will give you the outcome and the insights that you're looking for, rather than, like you said, just tracking everything under the sun and hoping that you have enough coverage. It makes sure that you're focusing on the right outcomes and the right insights that you want to, to strive towards.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then it also makes you avoid the flip side of it where you just, yeah, let's just get the thing shipped and we'll add tracking later because then you just lost all the time that you could have learned that the thing was going to work or not work. I think that's a critical learning. Great. So why don't we jump over to things that you felt like Uh, you learned in traditional product engineering that transferred really clearly to growth engineering. One of the things that you said is, so you were just talking about data. How do you think about like quantitative versus quantitative in those two contexts? And and what did you learn that transferred really well?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like you said, data is super important. Having qualitative Feedback as well as quantitative is always theoretically important, but it's easy to when taking a really strong growth engineering approach to say, well, we only really need the the quantitative stuff. We only need to know the specific reports and the insights around them that we set out to, to learn about. I think it's it's very easy to get caught up in that stuff. And you end up forgetting that the qualitative feedback. And actually talking to your customers is often a faster way to get the same result, especially for products that are really early on in their life cycle. Things like early access programs and beta customers and just manually talking to people hand to hand and reaching out to them. All of these things give you a really great perspective on the impact that your product actually has. And even like the onboarding flows that you own they may be defined by funnels but they're still only going to be as good as they're perceived by your users and your reports will never really show you exactly how your users are responding to those those steps that you built one of the pitfalls that we we fell into for a little bit was focusing very heavily on the quantitative methods of gaining insight uh, into the the drift video platform early on because we figured we need to see that our product is growing at similar rates to our role model companies that we're looking up to. So we need to be tracking everything that we should be tracking and we should be working towards things that will improve these metrics and so on. We got really caught up just focusing on those metrics and we didn't actually spend a lot of time thinking about the customers and actually talking to them and interacting with them. So it definitely took some some reworking to take a step back and think about, well, when you're doing traditional product development you don't often focus on the quantitative metrics as much you often think about using things like early access programs and talking to beta customers because those are ways that you can give a like a partially incomplete product to the people that care the most about it and get feedback really early on and that's a tool that a lot of the product teams at Drift use but it's not something that the growth teams took a lot of advantage of having that experience using early access programs and talking to beta customers from my previous, the teams that I'd been on prior, it gave a a bit of additional context into the additional insights that we weren't taking into full account.
0: I think this is a really important point because it's so easy to just get caught up in the data. And the reality is when you are remembering that you're Job and or your product is solving very specific jobs, and you're talking to customers to understand how it is or isn't aren't isn't meeting that need. Then it better informs the types of creative ideas and hypotheses that you, as a growth team, growth engineer, growth product manager, develop to test out. Right, because if you don't have that qualitative side. I've found myself in this spot before. It's really easy to come up with these like off the wall concepts, but then it could become so disillusioned from what the customer is actually thinking that sure it could be the most genius idea in the world, but if it's not gonna fit with the emotional thinking and needs of the people actually using it, then it's not gonna work anyway.
1: Yeah, it's it's really important to maintain that balance, whether it's a, a traditional product team or a growth team, you always need both sides. You need consistent access to qualitative and quantitative feedback.
0: Agreed. Okay, so another another one of your points was about failure. And it's pretty easy to say, well, we had this hypothesis and it didn't work. So the thing didn't work. But what what did you learn from traditional product that you felt like helped decide what to do in those scenarios? Like we were just talking
1: about with the like quantitative versus qualitative stuff, if you're again taking the qualitative approach, it's easy to say, "Well, we put so much time into this. Our beta customers aren't telling us the right things, the, the the feedback that we were hoping. we were expecting it to be more positive. But now we have a bunch of we have a bunch of learnings that we can apply to our beta product, make it better, and bring it back to them and get more feedback. And that's a really common life cycle to run through. If you're taking a very quantitative approach, it's also very easy, on the other hand, to say, well, this didn't work. It missed having the impact on the metrics that we were hoping. We can just scrap this and move forwards and essentially just write it off, where we won't go down this venue, this avenue anymore, and we'll explore some different ideas. When in reality, it's it's usually a mixture of the two, where shipping a product that fails doesn't mean it's a failure and should be removed. But it also doesn't mean that you can, you don't always need to force those products, essentially. Like there are certainly times where we shipped an update to the onboarding flow and it was just bad. We definitely needed to remove it <laughs> and push forwards. But there were certainly a bunch of other times where something didn't work out and there was plenty of information to draw from and to continue working on. It's really easy to treat each project like an experiment, but the conclusion of an experiment always, needs to end with reflection and more brainstorming, because there's always going to be learnings, whether it's a success or a failure. And understanding specifically why something worked or didn't work is a really crucial part to making sure that you don't miss out on any crucial insights that you put in the effort to gain, essentially.
0: Okay, great. Do you have any other things that you want to cover or wrap up with that you feel like you didn't get a chance to talk through yet?
1: The big thing to remember is at the end of the day, like you always serve your customers. It's not just the quantitative metrics that you're measuring yourself against. And it's not just the qualitative feedback that you get from your customers. You really need to take the time to empathize with them and understand like, what do they actually expect out of the thing that you're building? Even down to super nitty gritty details, like, how would they perceive this copy? Was the previous step like a really positive step for them? Or have you given them enough in return for the investment that they're making? All of this stuff adds up and making sure that you have, again, like enough tracking on both the quantitative side while also having avenues for collecting qualitative feedback. All of it makes sure that you you really stay in tune with providing a valuable experience. And you can always lean in Either direction, depending on the the project that you are working on, but again, like they're really just both different tools for different problems.
0: That is a great way to to sum it all up. I just want to say here, it's been a pleasure working with you, Alex. I think you are one of the best, like growth minded engineers that I've had a, a chance to work with. So I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing a lot of the stuff that you've learned over the very quick ramp that you've had into the growth world over the past year or so.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure learning from you. Again, I'd say the same. I've learned a ton from all of your podcasts that you've recorded. I've listened to a great deal of them, uh, especially in the beginning, trying to pick up on what all of this stuff actually meant. But yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to learn and share some information.
0: Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you again, Alex, for all of you listening. If you haven't paused me yet, please subscribe if you're a fan or leave a review. Would really appreciate it. My email is Would love to hear from you for anything, be it things you want to hear me talk about, guests, feedback, things we could be doing better. My inbox is always open. All right. With that, thank you. And we'll catch you on the next episode.